In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. My question is, what did Jesus have to say about the authority of Scripture? And the answer is quite a bit, actually. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not, not an iota, not a dot. The older translations, not a jot or tittle. The newer translation says, not a letter or a part of a letter. Think about that. The difference between a capital F and a capital E is this little line. Part of a letter, not even a part of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said, whoever relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of God. Don't know about you, but I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of God. At one point he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And I tell you, they are bearing witness to me. Jesus studied the scriptures. He memorized the scriptures. He taught the scriptures and he lived by them. You remember that he answered temptation by saying, it is written. And I, a faithful man, under the authority of God's word, will not succumb to a temptation that diverges from what God has said. On the evening of his own resurrection, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that must have been. I wonder if you realize that Most of the controversies he had with those two wonderful groups of folks, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were ultimately controversies over the authority of Scripture. Both of those groups were challenging the final say-so of God's word written, interestingly enough, in exactly opposite ways. The Pharisees had fine-tuned the art of smothering the Word of God with layers of tradition, interpretation, rules, and regulations. And the Sadducees, on the other hand, simply rejected almost all of what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They accepted only the first five books, the Torah, the the books of Moses, rejected all the rest, and even what remained, they interpreted through a rationalism that left no room for angels, miracles, heaven and hell, or life after death. Which, as one wag has said, is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> you may remember one of the controversies that Jesus had with the Sadducees. They, they came up with this This remarkable question. They said there was a woman whose husband died, and so she married his brother. And then he died, and she married the third brother. She went through seven brothers, married all of them. Last of all, the woman herself died, as well she might. Um, And in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Now, you you see, that's a trick question. They didn't want an answer. They were ridiculing the idea of resurrection. 
If she's had seven husbands in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Is she going to be the wife of the first husband? If so, what's she doing with all the rest of them? And if she's going to be the wife of all of them, what, what in the world do we have going on here? And Jesus said, your premises are completely wrong. He gave two parts to his answer. In the resurrection, there isn't going to be marriage as we know it. We're going to become like the angels. I do not fully understand what he meant by that. I'll give you an opinion. I don't think he was saying we are going to be less than physical, less than sexual beings in the resurrection. I think in some way that we really can't imagine, he was saying we're going to be more than that. We're not going to be limited in intimacy to the physical selves that we are now. I think that's what he was saying. But he went on to say, you remember what God said, and watch what he did. He quote, there are lots of passages in the Old Testament that talk about resurrection, talk about heaven. <clears throat> For instance, the book of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the last day I will see him For myself and not as a stranger. When this body is destroyed, I'll be there with, you know, that's, we say that at funerals. But they didn't accept the book of Job, you see. So Jesus quoted to them from one of the books they do accept, the book of Exodus. He said, you remember when God gave Moses his marching orders to lead the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt? Moses said, I don't even know your name. And God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived centuries ago in the time of Moses. Not, <clears throat> not I was their God when they were alive. I am their God right now, which is to say they are still alive with me. That's how he dealt with the Sadducees. And interestingly enough, it says that after that interchange, they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. The Sadducees took away from the scriptures. The Pharisees added to them. I want to look at this encounter Jesus had with the Pharisees one day, and I need to give you a little bit of background. The Pharisees taught that in addition to the word of God written, there was another parallel divine revelation handed down from one generation to another. It was handed down orally. It was called the traditions of the fathers or the traditions of the elders. And they taught that it went all the way back to Moses who received it as he did the Ten Commandments from God himself on Mount Sinai. And since both the written word and the oral tradition came ultimately from God, both are equally authoritative, both are his word, equally important, the problem was they don't always agree with each other. And so the Pharisaic school increasingly gave priority to the oral tradition. And as it was added, the scriptures were interpreted in the light of the tradition. During the second century BC, these oral traditions were finally written down in the Mishnah. You've heard of the Mishnah? 
It's a collection of six books of laws arranged topically, laws about agriculture, festivals, marriage, civil and criminal offenses, and so on. And then that was later supplemented by the Gemara, which was a commentary on those laws, and taken together, the Mishnah and the Gemara form the Jewish Talmud. And by the time of Jesus, the rabbis were fond of saying that God himself studies the scriptures during the day and the Mishnah by night. You like that? God himself studies the scriptures by day and the Mishnah by night. And they often added, now the, the, the scriptures are water. The Mishnah is wine. Ah, but the Gemara is spiced wine. You get the priority here? In the incident in today's gospel reading, the Pharisees are upbraiding Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat with unwashed hands. You need to understand that the problem was not hygiene, but etiquette. Not that the disciples' hands were literally dirty, but that they were ceremonially unclean. They hadn't gone through the proper religious ceremony of washing. And when you stop and think about it, Jesus' response was extremely strong, almost harsh. You have to ask, what's wrong with taking a moment to wash your hands, whether ceremonially or because they're dirty? What's wrong with taking a moment to wash your hands before you begin your meal? And the answer, of course, is nothing is wrong with it. Unless you insist that it must be done just so. Because God hasn't insisted that it must be done just so. When we begin making rules, especially rules that pertain to the worship of God, when God himself has made no such rules, we are on very dangerous grounds. Jesus says that is hypocrisy. It's a matter of honoring God in outward form while our hearts are very far away from him. It is empty, worthless worship. It is form without substance. You know, one of the finest singers that I have ever known left the choir of her church and finally left the church itself because they introduced piano and guitar into the worship. Because everybody knows it's supposed to be an organ, right? I've known, literally, I've known people who were unable to worship because one of the candles was crooked. There are folks in many Episcopal churches who cannot or will not participate unless the liturgy is in Elizabethan English. It's amazing. We still call it the new prayer book 36 years later. And I've known folks who are completely distracted if somebody near them is wearing an open shirt rather than a suit and tie. Not so many here in Florida. These are trivial examples, of course, and that is exactly the point. We can look down on those groups of Christians who have their laws about smoking and drinking and movies and dancing and all that stuff, but, you know, we'll make our own list sooner or later. You know the seven last words of the church. We never did it that way before. 
Michael Marshall is, is one of the great Anglo-Catholic bishops in England, one of the great renewal figures. And, and he told the story about when he became rector of St. Margaret Mary in London. Very high church, smoke and, you know, pomp and circumstance. And first service, new rector, brand new rector. A little bit nervous. And when the service was over, the senior acolyte said, Father, you made 17 errors. <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell you this. I have, I have heard arguments among Episcopal clergy about whether you cross yourself this way or this way. And, most importantly, when you're all done, whether you do this. These are traditions. There are some that are more serious than that. What about the Anglican insistence for the past 120 years that the only kind of valid ecumenical venture will be that which is based on having a system of Episcopal oversight? I love the Episcopacy. I'm a bishop. But we can't even talk about it if you have a Presbyterian form or a congregational form of government. Or how about the Roman Catholic teaching that takes that a step farther and asserts the universal primacy and infallibility of the Pope? You do know that as far as Rome is concerned, all Anglican orders are invalid. Traditions of men. When that which has evolved outside of Scripture is put on a par with Scripture or even above it, we are in very great danger of becoming Pharisees. And mind you, the Pharisees were the folks that got the harshest criticism of Jesus over and over and over and over again. Not adulterers. Not thieves, not murderers, not tax collectors, but Pharisees. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I, I just like doing it a certain way. Like, for instance, washing my hands. <laughs> all right. Don't misunderstand. Jesus didn't reject all traditions as wrong. He simply said, don't make them obligatory. Scripture is divine, tradition is human. Scripture is authoritative, tradition is optional. Scripture is supreme, tradition is subordinate. Let me put it this way. When how we do something becomes more important than what we're doing, and what we're doing is more important than why we're doing it, we've probably already crossed the line, Jesus said, by our traditions making void the word of God. You did hear in Deuteronomy, don't add to it and don't take from it. One more thought. When you add to scripture, you're actually detracting from it. <clears throat> because if the gospel needs something in addition then the gospel itself is inadequate. 
Beware of that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.